the murder and coffee. <sighs> now, did you bring your mom this time? Maybe your dad? Either way. Well, here we are, ladies and gentlemen. Today we are covering George Stinley Jr. Pretty much. Youngest people to get executed. So let's begin. George Stanley, birthday, October twenty first, nineteen twenty nine. Died June sixteenth, nineteen forty four. It was a boy who, at age of fourteen, was wrongfully convicted and then executed and proceeding later as not guilty. You didn't do it. It was an unfair trial. The murders of two white girls between March 1944, Betty June, age 11, and Mary Emma Tamis, age 7, the hometown of South Carolina. He was convicted, sentenced to death, and executed by electrical chair in June 1944, thus becoming the youngest American with an exact birth date, covering to be both sentenced to death and executed in the 20th century. A re-examination of Sin Lee's case began in 2004, and several individuals at the School of Law sought a ju judicial review. Stanley's murder conviction was vacated in 2014, 70 years later. After he was executed with a South Carolina court ruling that he had not received a fair trial and thus wrongfully executed. So, let's talk about this guy. He stood five foot one and weighed 90 to 95 pounds. He lived in a small town with a chicken coop in his hometown in South Carolina with his father, George Stinney Sr. Mother Ann Brown Stinney, brother Charles Stinney, 12, and sisters Catherine Stinney, 10, and Amy Stinney Ruffner, 7. Stinney's father worked at the town sawmill and the family resigned in a company housing. It was a small working class mill town where white and black neighborhoods were separated by railroad tracks. On March 23, 1944, the bodies of Betty June Bicken, Bicken, Ben Nicker, Ben Nicker, Ben Nicker, and Mary Emma Tahamas were found in a ditch on the African-American side of the tracks after the girls failed to return home the night before. Sydney's father assisted in the search. The girls had been beaten with a weapon, various repeat of blunt force trauma with a part of a railroad track. Ben Dinker and Tahamas both suffered severe blunt force trauma, resulting in both girls' skull being wrecked. In the nicest way to say it. 
According to the report by the medical examiner, these wounds had been inflicted by a blunt instrument with a round head and about the size of a hammer. The medical examiner reported no evidence of sexual A to the young girls. Thank you, Jeebus. One. I forgot to mute my phone. Let me do that. Oh, better. The girls were last seen riding their bicycles looking for flowers as they passed the Stinney's property. They had asked Stinney and his sister, Amy, if they knew where to find Maypops, a local name for a passion flower. According to Amy, she was with Stinney at the time the police later established the murders occurred. According to the article reported on March 24, 1944, the sheriff announced the arrest of George Junius and stated that the boy had confessed and led officers to a hidden piece of iron. Investigation! George's older brother, John, were arrested on suspicions of murdering the girls. John was released by the police. Which, back in the day, when, you know, this whole black versus white thing was going on, if anything happened to white, they blamed the blacks. If anything happened to blacks, well, it was the whites. You know, <clears throat> there was no Pacific. Oh, maybe one of our own could have done it, you know? Yeah. This is back then. They just assumed. Makes me also want to imagine a policeman on a horse just do, 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 do. you know? the images. <laughs> anyway, they're held in custody. He was not allowed to see his parents until after trial and conviction. According to the handwritten statement, his arrest officer was a deputy who stated, I arrested the boy by the name of George Stinney. He then made a confession and told me where to find the piece of iron and about 15 inches where he said he put it in the ditch. About 15 inches where he said he put it in the ditch about six feet from the bicycle. I put it next to the rock, but it was 15 feet from that said rock, which I threw off my bicycle to the left side of the universe. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry you couldn't find it in the universe. I just threw it 15 feet the other direction. You know. 1995, Stanley's 7th grade teacher, a black man, spoke in an interview. I remember the day he killed those children. He got into a fight with a girl at school who was his neighbor. In those days, you didn't have to worry about children carrying guns and knives at school, but George carried a little knife, and he scratched his, this child with a knife. I took him outside, and we went for a little walk, and I talked to him. He went back into the school. In a submissive way, he begged for the child's pardon. Stinney's sister, Amy, denied those allegations and contacted Hamilton after it was published. Amy stated, I asked him why he would say something like that. 
He told me someone paid him to say it. I don't know who paid him, but exact words were, because they paid me. Hamilton died shortly after his interview was published. Following his arrest, his father was fired from his job at the local sawmill, and the Stennis family had immediately vacated their company housing. The family feared for their safety. His parents did not see him again after the trial. He had no support during his 81-day confinement and trial. He was detained at the jail. Stenny was questioned alone, without his parents, without an attorney. Although the Sixth Amendment guarantees legal counsel, this was not routinely observed until the United States Supreme Court in 1963. Oh, here we go with the trial, right? The entire proceeding against Stanley Kuda jury selection took place April 24, 1944. Stanley's court-appointed counselor, a tax commissioner campaigning for the election to the local office, Cloud did not challenge the three police officers who were arrested that Stinney confessed to the two murders, nor did he try to defend Stinney. He also did not challenge the prosecutor's presentation of two different versions of Stinney's verbal confession. In one version, Stinney was attacked by the girls after he tried to help one who had fallen in the ditch, and he killed them in self-defense in order, which was the other version. He had followed the girls, first attacking Mary, then Betty June, a ward. That's kind of funny. Because, uh, if you didn't watch it, my last episode was, uh, Mary Bell, but I kept calling her Beth. Which... Come to find out the reason I kept calling her that, I found out after I finished the recording, I labeled the video Mary Beth before I even recorded it. So that's where that Beth came from. <laughs> More Beth. Betty June. There was no rec written record of Stanley's confession apart from the deputy's written statement. Other than the testimony of three police officers, our trial prosecutors called three witnesses, Reverend Francis Batson, who discovered the bodies of the two girls, and the two doctors who performed the postmortem examination. The court allowed decision of the possibility of sexual aid due to bruising on one of their genitals. Stinney's counsel did not call the witness, did not call cross-examination witnesses, and offered little or no defense at all. We're just here to get paid. I don't care what happened or who you did, what they did, and what they did to you. I don't care. I'm just here to get paid. You know, that kind of stuff. The trial presented last two and a half hours. Of course. More than a thousand white Americans crowded that courtroom. Imagine fucking that. Hmm. <laughs> I swear, back in the day, would have pissed me off. Mm. Would have been really upsetting to me. It was so unfair back in the day. There was no need for that. He was tried before an all-white jury. Number one, unfair. 
After deliberating for less than 10 minutes, the jury found Stanley guilty of murder. Sentenced Stanley to death by electrocution. There is no transcript of the trial. No appeal was filed by the Stanley Council. Most of the pleas for clemency came from white women living in South Carolina. Some pleas from whites came with affirmations of white supremacy. Fabulous. Okay, some pleas from whites came from affirmation of white supremacy, but discomfort at the prospect of someone so young being executed. Others urged the governor to let the execution proceed, which he did. He visited George Stedley in the death house two days before the execution on June 14th. Johnston wrote a response to appeal for clemency, stating, I have just talked with the officer who made the arrest in this case. It may be interesting for you to know that Stanley killed the smaller girl to sexually aid the bigger one. 20 minutes later, he returned and attempted to sexually aid the girl again, but her body was too cold. All of this admitted himself. He didn't. This. This. It was reported that these were just rumors, and the Johnson clans were not corroborated by the girls' autopsies. Duh. Between the time of Stanley's arrest and his execution, his parents were allowed to see him once after the trial, when he was held in a Colombian penitentiary. Under the threat of lynching, which is anybody getting to him or anything slipping through the cracks, you know, all that stuff. They were not allowed to see him any other time. Stanley was executed on Friday, June 16, 1944, 7.30 a.m. He was prepared for execution by the chair using a Bible as a booster seat. Let, th let that sit in. He was so small, so young, that they had to put, like, a Bible, thick Bible, under his bootay. Not a phone book, a Bible. Just so he could reach the hat. Ooh, excuse you, hair. Get back in place. No one told you to get out of here. But he was too small for the chair. He was then restrained by his arms, legs, and body to the chair. An officer asked George if he had any last words to say before the execution took place, but he only shook his head and said, No, sir. The executioner pulled the straps from the chair and placed it over George's mouth, causing him to break into tears, and then he placed a face mask over his face, which did not fit him, as he continued sobbing. Oof. Hmm.
When a lethal electricity was applied, the mask covering his face slipped off, revealing tears streaming down his face. This perception was later contested by the... A person... He said it was just a rumor that the hood had slipped and they did not put a stack of books underneath him. He was buried in an unmarked grave in Crowley. So, this was reopening of the case. You know, uh, when you're in law in the class, they pretty much want you to find the you know, unsolved mysteries or see if you can solve this one. Uh, see if you can help with it, understand it, what's wrong, you know, good practice. So, in 2004, many years later, Stater reached searching the case after reading a newspaper article about it. His work gained the attention of lawyers Steve McKenzie and Matt Burgess. In addition, Ray Brown, attorney James Moon, and others contributed to countless hours of research and review of historical documents and found witnesses and evidence to assist in Stinny. Those who aided the case were the Civil Rights and Restoration Justice Project, CRRJ, at the Northeastern University School of Law, which filed an amicus brief in the court in 2004, which is an individual organized who is not a party to the legal case, but who is permitted to assist by court by offering information expertise and insight that has been bearing on the issues in this case. That's what it means. Frierson and pro bono lawyers first sought relief through the Pardon and Parole Board of South Carolina. Mackenzie and Burgess, along with attorney Ray Chandler, representing Stainless Family, filed a motion for a new trial on October 25, 2013. If we can get the case reopened, we can go to the judge and say there was, wasn't any reason to convict this child. There was no evidence to present to the jury. There was no transcript. This case needs to be reopened. This is just injustice that needs to be rightened. I'm pretty optimistic that if we can get the witness, we need to come forward. We will be successful in the court. We hopefully that we have witnesses that are going to say that's non-family, non-relative witnesses who is going to be able to tie all this in and say, this was basically an alibi witness. They're, they were there with Mr. Stanley and did not occur. That was by Stephen McKenzie. Pearson stated in interviews, there was been a person that has been named by the culprit who is now deceased. It was said by the family that there was a deathbed confession. You know, they're dying. I'm going to tell you this before I die. So the rumored culprit came from a well-known Prominent a white family, a member of the, or members of the family, has served in the initial coroner's and justice jury, which I remember making it suddenly be prosecuted. There is compelling evidence that George Stanley was innocent of the crimes for which he was executed in 1944. The prosecutors relived and almost exclusively on one piece of evidence to obtain a convention of an unsigned confession of a 14-year-old who was deprived of counsel and parental guidance, and whose defense lawyer shockingly failed to call many witnesses or preserve his right to appeal. 
New evidence in the court hearing in January 2014 included testimony by Sunley's siblings that he was with them at the time of the murders. In addition, an affidavit was introduced from the Reverend Francis Batson, who found the girls and pulled them from the water-filled ditch. In the statement, he recalls that was not much blood in around the ditch, suggesting that they may have been killed elsewhere and moved. Somebody who was in prison with Stanley testified that the teenager told him he was been made to confess and always maintained his innocence. The solicitor who argued for the state against exoneration, <sighs> who was appointed as South Carolina's first African-American Supreme Court justice since Reconstruction. Rather than approving the new trial, December 16, 2014, a judge, Carmen Mullen, vacated Stanley's conviction. She ruled that he had not received a fair trial and he has not effectively defended and a Sixth Amendment right has been violated. The ruling was a rare use of the legal remedy. Judge Mullen ruled that his confession was likely coerced and thus cruel and unusual punishment that his attorney failed to call witnesses and to prefer his right to an appeal. Mullen could affect her judgment to process and prosecution, noting that Stanley may well have committed this crime with reference to the legal process. No one could justify a 14-year-old child charged, tried, and convicted, and executed in 80 days, concluding that, in essence, not much was done for this child when his life lay in the balance. Okay, this was just them talking to other people, you know, pulling more witnesses or people that related, you know, to the people back in the day, the 1990s, you know, if they're even still alive. Since Stanley's exoneration, the son of the wealthy white businessman had been the subject of speculation as a possible suspect of the murders. Anyways, that person died two and three years after the murder of the two girls in 1947. At age 29, Stanley's mother had worked for the Burke family for a brief period. Stanley's sister recalled that her mother had once come home saying that Burke Sr. had made advances on her and that her father was told her mother to no longer go back. 